Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bible and go with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter number one this morning. Matthew chapter one is where we'll find our place. If you don't have your Bible with you, there should be one, perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you. Maybe in the back of the seat behind you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. I would encourage you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. In fact, if you don't have a Bible at all, that Bible in the back of the seat right there, that would be our gift to you. We would ask you to take that with you as you go from this place. We, we believe there's nothing more important than having a copy of God's Word in your hand, in your home, and in your heart. And so if we can give that to you because you don't have one, then please, by all means, take that one right there. Matthew chapter number one, and we're going to turn our attention this morning to the first 18 verses. Matthew chapter one, verse number one, all the way down to verse number 18. And at first glance, you're probably wondering why the first 18 verses? Because if you look at those verses just quickly, you'll realize this is nothing more than a genealogy that begins... The New Testament. The Bible records a number of genealogies. Most of the time, whenever we come to a list of names like this, we skip over it because we find the names, first of all, almost unpronounceable. And second, we find them unrelevant to, to our lives. What? Would it matter that so-and-so begat so-and-so or fathered so-and-so? But in the Bible, genealogies are treated as your resume, if you will. It's, it's your pedigree, it's your history, it's your greatness. The genealogy was used as a way of saying, look who I am. Look at the family that I come from. Look at the royalty that I'm a part of. But it was also a way to say, look where I belong. Look, look why I have a say. Look why I get to be here. Look, look, here's why you should hear me. A resume in the ancient world was treated in both of these ways. And as a result of this, Oftentimes, people would take out the embarrassing parts of their genealogy. All of the people in their family tree that would embarrass them in some way, they didn't want anybody to know about. Now, before you're too hard on them, we do the same thing. I remember taking Amanda to my very first. She was my girlfriend. I was her boyfriend. I remember taking her to our very first Christmas together, and she was going to meet all of my family. And I remember thinking on the drive over, oh, I hope everybody behaves. I hope Aunt Susie is on her medication. I hope that one crazy uncle doesn't even show up. That's what I remember thinking. Oh, man, I, because if she meets all of my family, and if she sees them in all of that moment, and she might, she might never talk to me again. I'm trying to hide that part from her. 
It tells us about where we are from. It tells us about where we belong. Why does the gospel begin with a genealogy? It's a story about where Jesus is coming from, but it's a story about what Jesus plans to do. It's not so much a a lineage of his greatness. Christ knows where he belongs. He's the son of God, God wrapped in the flesh. He was with God in eternity. Before the beginning, John says, that's where Christ was. And him and the Father and the Holy Spirit existed in perfect unity. The genealogy is not listed so that we might understand where Jesus belongs. The genealogy is listed to help you and I understand where we belong. If you're wondering this morning, do I belong in the family of God? Do I belong with the people of God? Do I belong in a church like this? Do do I belong with Christ? This genealogy records for us that in fact we do. But you and I belong with God not because of anything that we have done. We belong with God because of what Christ has done for us. And this shows us that. Now, you'll be happy to know I'm not going to read all the way through this, okay? But we're going to highlight a few things. I want to, I want to read a first, the first few verses, though. Look at, with me at verse number 1. The Bible says in chapter 1, verse 1, The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Okay, so look here. You'll notice all the way through this, there's a particular rhythm to what's being said. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judah. And all the way through the list, it goes reading like this. Until you get to the very end of it. So go to verse number 16. We'll skip over this. We'll come back and touch some of these names in just a moment. But look at verse number 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. And Joseph did not begat Jesus. Abraham begat Isaac, and Jesse begat David and Jacob begat Joseph. He he fathered him. But Joseph is not the father of Jesus. And do you know why? Because Jesus' father is is God the Father. Jesus' father is God. That's what the Bible teaches us in Luke chapter number 2. That when Jesus was born into this world, he was born of the Virgin Mary. So notice how Matthew records. It's very interesting. Jacob begat Joseph. Where does Joseph come into play? How is Joseph in the story of Jesus? Well, Joseph, he's the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who's called Christ. Look at verse 17. And so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David unto the carrying away of the Babylon, into Babylon are 14 generations. 
and from carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus was on this wise. Here is how the birth of Jesus came to be. That's what he's saying. So what does it mean that Jesus was born into this family? What does it mean for you and me that Jesus was born in this way to these people? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to find three things with God's help. This is Jesus' promised family. That's the first thing we'll see. This is Jesus' royal family. That's the second thing that we'll see. This is Jesus' broken family. That's the third thing we'll see. So let's pray together. And we'll look at these three points with the Lord's help and with the time that we have remaining. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Father, use your word in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. If I were to ask you, where does Jesus' story begin? Where does the story of Christmas begin? You might be tempted to say, well, it begins in the manger. Or, or, or you might say, well, no, it, it begins with Jesus' public ministry and baptism. Or you might say, no, it, it begins when Jesus was crucified, buried, rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and then sent and left behind another, the, the Holy Spirit. But, but Matthew comes onto the scene and says, no, 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 that, that's not really where the story of Jesus begins. If you want to know where the story of Jesus begins, then you have to go way back to the very beginning. Look at verse number one. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Here is the story of Jesus. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and so on and so forth. And Matthew says Jesus' story does not begin with the beginning of a fairy tale. Bible stories are, are sometimes presented this way. They're presented like fairy tales. You know, like once upon a time in a faraway galaxy. Oh, once upon a time there lived a man who was a shepherd boy. Or once upon a time there was a man by the name of Noah who was told to go and build a boat. The Bible doesn't begin as a fairy tale. The Bible doesn't start with, well, once upon a time. Now, fairy tales are, are great stories. They have wonderful meanings. There's fairy tales like Hercules and King Arthur and Peter Pan and Beauty and the Beast. Oh, these are all great stories. But that, here's the thing about these fairy tales. None of them actually happened. They're myth, they're, they're make-believe. And, and while it might be true that we can find certain things that we identify with in those stories, that we, we might identify with the idea that somewhere out there, there is a love that if we find it, it can break us out of our beastliness. Or we might identify with, with somewhere out there, there's a love who can come and give me true love's kiss and wake me up from this sleeping state that I find myself in. Or we might identify with the idea that we could stay young and fly around forever. While there may be things that we identify with in these stories, none of these things are real. 
Christmas is not a make-believe fairy tale. Christmas is not a once-upon-a-time kind of myth. Christmas is rooted in a historical reality. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis says Christmas means that myth became fact. That in Jesus Christ... We have a hope that is beyond this life. In Jesus Christ, we have a hope that one day all things will be as they should be. In Jesus Christ, we have this hope that all of the sad things, the bad things, the mad things will be made untrue because of what Christ has done for us. We do not say this simply because it's comforting, although it is comforting. We say this because it's true. It is a reality of Christmas. The reality of God's plan being brought to you and to me is what we experience at the Christmas season. If you want to understand Jesus, Matthew says, then you need to understand what God told Abraham. Look at verse number two. Abraham begat Isaac. Here is where it began. What he's alluding to is he is alluding to that promise that God made to Abraham. God had taken Abraham out into the desert and God had told Abraham, I want you to look up. Look at all the stars in the sky. You see how endless, how countless they are? Abraham, that is what your offspring will be. I will make out of you a great nation and I will bring from you a a descendant, a seed which will bless all of the nations in the world. And what God had in mind when he said that is that there would be one descendant, one particular descendant from Abraham's family who would come and rescue God's people from their sin. He would rescue them from the great enemy of their sin. He would free them. He would set them free over the captivity that they found themselves in, in death. And that is, of course, what is ours through Jesus Christ. And Matthew says, you need to realize this genealogy about Jesus is is, is rooted in a historical reality of God's plan. But you also need to understand a second thought, and that is this, not just the reality of God's plan, but the reliability of God's word. Now, you and I may not think much about it because we know the end of the story, but if you put yourself in Abraham's position, you'll realize very quickly that it looked like this promise was not going to be kept. It looked like the promise would fail. It looked as if to Abraham that God was not going to perform what he said he would perform. Do you remember when Abraham got the promise? That Abraham, when he receives the promise, has at the very same time a barren wife named Sarah. And it looked like the promise came to an end right there. And not just that, but 
Once they have a child, God tells them to take that child, Isaac, up to the top of a mountain and sacrifice him. It looked like the promise was going to fail. And not just that, but later on, the 12 sons of Jacob were, were looking like they were going to starve in the wilderness without food because of this great famine that had come through. And it looked like the promise was going to come to an end. And not just that, but later when they were slaves in Egypt, it looked like they were not going to make it out of Egypt at all. It looked like the promise was going to fail. And not just that, but when they came to the promised land, they were persecuted and harassed and had gone to war with the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Moabites and all other kinds of tribes and people. And it looked like the promises would fail. And then after that, they were sentenced to exile, carried off into captivity. Twice that, was, that happened to them as a result of their disobedience and sin. It looked like the promise was not going to make it. And then we get to Matthew chapter 1. So these are the generations from Abraham to David to the carrying away to Babylon and then to Christ. You see, the genealogy of Jesus helps us understand something. And that is this. Write this down. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. Were there circumstances along the way that made it look like it wouldn't make it? Absolutely. Did the children of Israel find themselves in difficult straits and full of doubt? 100%. The promise is, that God makes, God always keeps. We learn in the genealogy of Jesus, not simply about the reality of God's plan, but we learn in the genealogy of Jesus, the reliability of God for his word. Listen very closely. God is good for his word. There are not very many people in this world who are good for their word. God is good for his word. And there are many times in life where we are full of doubt. And there are many times in life where we find ourselves in a difficult strait. We find ourselves in confusing positions. But God is good for his word. That Jesus is promised family. God made a promise and God delivered. I want you to think about this. What promises have God made to you? What promises has God made to you? And there are times in our lives where we know the promises, we even claim the promises that God has given to us in his word, and yet we find ourselves in a difficult spot, full of doubt, angry at God, bitter at God, resentful to God. Why? Because we think, well, yeah, of course God did what he said he would do in the past, but God is not going to do what he said he would do for me in the future. No, 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 friend. God does not change. He is a faithful and true God. He is good for his word. You can take it to the bank. God did what he said he would do. God will do what he said he would do. 
God did what he said he would do for Abraham. God will do what he said he would do for you. And God, God, God keeps his word. So we see Jesus' promised family, but I, I want you to see something else. We see Jesus' royal family. So it begins like this, the, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. The, there's a reality to this. It's not myth, it's not make-believe. There, there's the reliability. God said he would do this and he did. But notice this, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Skip down to verse number six. And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon. Now here's what's interesting. There are other kings in this passage, but none of them get the, the, the special notation as the king. So Matthew is doing something specific. He is saying, Dave, he is saying Jesus is from the line of David. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is that royal king. Jesus is that rightful king. There's no doubt Matthew has in his mind the promise that God made to David that, David, that David's throne, David's kingdom would stay in power, in rule from David all the way through. So Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus is not only the royal king and that he's from a royal line, but Jesus is the rightful king. And what that means is that if Jesus is the rightful king, then Herod is the wrong king. If Jesus is the rightful king, the throne belongs to him, then the throne that Herod occupies does not belong to him. He is an imposter. This, is, this explains the, the angst, the, the hatred, the opposition that Herod has toward Jesus when Jesus is built. The, the wise men come and they say there is one who is born king of the Jews. Not, not one who would become the king of the Jews. One who is born king. He's from this right line. And Jesus is not just the, the rightful king of Israel, but listen very closely because the New Testament would help us understand that Jesus is the rightful king of all of the world. The Bible calls him the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the king who rules them all. Why? Because he is not a king from this world. He is a king from heaven. He's robed in glory. He's robed in majesty. He's robed in power and might. And yet it is not power and might as we understand power and might. It's a power and might not to defeat a military foe. It's not power and might that brings economic or political success. It's a power and might that defeats our great opposition, which we have not in this world. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Jesus is the king who rules it all. That's what the Bible teaches us. And Jesus is the rightful king. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king of it all. Which is why at the end of the Gospels, when Jesus is ascending to heaven, he looks at his disciples and he says to them, 
I give you authority. I give you power. To do what? To go and make disciples. And teaching and preaching and baptizing and discipling and obeying all things that I have said to you. We're coming to the end of the year, and the end of the year is always a time that we like to look back and see what we were able to accomplish, but it's also a time that we like to look forward and plan what we will accomplish. And as we think of a season like this, we we like to think in terms of, well, this is what I'm here to do. This is the mission statement I have. These are the values I hold. You know, the mission statement for every church, you know, the mission statement for every Christian ought to be go and make disciples. How did you do this last year in 2022 of making disciples? How will you do in 2023 of making disciples? Of going and telling and preaching and teaching and discipling and obeying the word of God. We, we, we without hesitation should, should think in terms of what we want to accomplish financially in the year to come. We without hesitation should think in terms of what we want to accomplish physically by way of exercise and, and weight loss of what we want to do in 2020. We without hesitation should think in terms of where we want to position our family. We without hesitation should think about what we want to create or craft as it relates to our job or our retirement. Without hesitation, these things should, should be be thought of, they should be planned, they should be uh, purposed in order to be accomplished in 2023. But listen, friend, listen, Christian, we cannot neglect this, the making of disciples, the going and telling the good news of Jesus Christ. The king has come. He is the rightful king of it all. The king has come. And Jesus' promised family is what the genealogy helps us remember. And Jesus' royal family is the rightful king. He's the one king that rules them all. He's promised. But that's not just it. There's one more, one more thought. Notice this. Jesus' broken family. Jesus' broken family. You read through the names and you have, to, you have to put your Old Testament thinking cap on for just a few moments. And some people think, well, you don't need the Old Testament at all. And if you don't understand anything about the Old Testament, then you miss, you miss so much of the, of the start of the new. Abraham, a liar, a coward. Abraham, the the same one who told his wife Sarah to lie and say that she was his sister because she was so beautiful that as they went into the new city, they would kill Abraham in order to have her. Jacob, the schemer, the manipulator, the cheat. The man who plotted with his mother to hustle his brother Eli out of a birthright and a blessing. 
the man who then after he hustled Eli took off running in fear of being killed by Esau. You read through the list, you'll find the the name Tamar in verse number 3. Tamar, a lady who was guilty of illicit living and incest. She had married Judah's firstborn son. He had died. And Judah failed to deliver to her another husband, so she dressed up like a woman of ill repute. She sold herself to her father-in-law so that she could inherit some kind of birthright or blessing. Verse 5, you'll find the name Rahab. Rahab who helped the Israelites spy out the land of Jericho. Her life was spared because she helped God's people. But before God would save her and spare her, the Bible records for us that she was selling her body in order to make a living. Verse 5, you'll find the name Ruth, who was a godly lady. Yes, faithful and true, that's certain, but also a woman who was an outcast. A, A woman from a group of people who were denied access to the people of God because they were from an incestuous line. She was a Moabitess, the Bible says. Verse 6, you'll find an interesting phrase. The phrase is, David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. In other words, David fathered Solomon by Bathsheba, who, of course, was not David's wife, but in fact, the wife of Uriah. So David had to cover his adulterous sin, and so he had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered. You'll find the name Solomon who married hundreds of foreign women, allowed all kinds of false religion and pagan practices in Israel. His house was as dysfunctional as his reign as a result. And in the end, his sons end up splitting the kingdom among themselves for it to never be reunited again. Rehoboam, one of Solomon's sons, who's arrogant and pagan practices just like his father. He ignored the advice of the older, wiser men. He instead chose to listen to the younger men around him, and he put Israel in such straits politically, socially, economically, that they'd be hauled off into captivity in just a few short years from when he began. Uzziah, verse 8, allows false worship in Judah to continue so much so that the Lord judges him, makes him a leper. Therefore, he's called unclean. He's cast out. You have Ahaz in verse number 9 who engages in all kinds of pagan worship, even burning one of his own sons in 2 Kings chapter number 16. And on and on and on we could go. And Jesus' family tree is full of sinners and scoundrels. And you read through his family tree, you start to feel a little bit better about your family. I have a crazy uncle, but nobody's murdered anybody that I know of. The names on the list are nothing to brag about. It's something that 
most kings would have tried to erase. They would have tried to hide it. They would have tried to clean it up. They would have tried to get rid of it, but not, 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 not so with Christ. Why? Well, because it reminds us of the exact people that Jesus came to save. Jesus came for the sinful. Jesus came for the fallen. Jesus came for the broken. And Jesus, of course, does not endorse this kind of behavior. God calls for the people who did the things that these individuals have done, he calls for them to repent. God calls us to turn by faith in Jesus and repent of our sin to a new kind of obedience. But that is just the point, that when you come to the family of God through faith and repentance, something in you changes. You become somebody brand new. The old you is washed away and the brand new you lives. You're a new creature, Paul says. You're a new creature in Christ. Why? Because God has made you new. You may be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, well, if anyone found out what I have done, if anyone knew what I did, I would never be accepted in Jesus' family. And this is the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he knows everything you've ever done and he loves you anyway. He knows all the dark secrets of your life, the things you hope no one ever figures out. And he loves you with an unconditional, unchanging love. And if you say, well, pastor, how do we know that? And Paul would say it like this to the church at Rome, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That word commendeth literally means proved. He showcased his love. He put it on display. God displayed his love for you and me in that he knows everything there is to know about you. All of the things you hope are never uncovered. All of the parts of your life that you've tried to hide or erase. It's all known to God. And he does not turn away from you. Instead, he offers to you this morning the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers to you the same invitation offered to these men and women in Matthew chapter 5. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on Jesus and you can find yourself a member of God's family. That's the whole point of Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 all the way down to verse 18. 
It's not just a history lesson. It, it is history, but it's not just that. It's more than just looking at a list of names that we don't recognize. The whole point of why God is recording this is to make it abundantly clear to you and to me of his intention of bringing his grace into our lives so that we would respond to his grace with faith. That we would believe him to bring us into his family. Not our good works, not our good intention, not our self-righteousness. It is his grace and his grace alone. It is his grace and his grace alone. The world at this time of the year celebrates the Christmas season. The Christians, we don't simply celebrate a season. We celebrate the Savior who was promised, who is royal, the King and who is full of grace to you and to me.